Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 25 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a hot caramel coffee, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into The Vanishing of Cynthia Anderson. So far on this podcast, we have covered a variety of missing persons cases, however, for any true crime enthusiast, it can be nearly impossible to even scratch the surface. The NAMIS.gov website estimates that about 600,000 people disappear each year, and while obviously not all of those cases involve a crime or any sort of foul play, the number is entirely overwhelming. In this vastly long list of missing persons, however, there are some cases that will always stick out as especially disturbing, and the case of Cynthia Anderson is absolutely one such example. Cynthia vanished from her job in Toledo, Ohio on the morning of August 4, 1981, leaving behind barely a trace or a clue. In the year leading up to her disappearance, Cynthia had been receiving terrifying messages from an anonymous individual who has never been identified and who many believe holds the key to solving this 40-year-old investigation. No leads have been identified so far, but there are theories to explore, each one nearly as plausible as the next. Cynthia Jane Anderson, also known as Cindy, was born on February 4th of 1961. She was raised in a very religious household of Christian fundamentalists, and she followed a schedule packed with prayer meetings, church swimming events and camping trips, seasonal church parties, and church worship every Sunday. Her father, Michael, described her as a, quote, quiet, obedient type of girl who never made waves, yet had lots of friends, end quote. She was an extremely attractive young woman, so beautiful that one of her neighbors, Luann Hayward, has said that she, quote, maybe caught the attention of a passerby, end quote. While her parents insisted on the rules and curfews they had set for her living at home, she did still have a boyfriend who was also a church member. The summer that Cynthia went missing, her father said she had been, quote, becoming a bit of a debutante, end quote. However, this is an extremely subjective term, and Cynthia wasn't involved with anything illegal or dangerous. What he really meant was that Cynthia had started to show more care for her appearance. She was a very ambitious young woman and was only two weeks away from attending a Christian college with her boyfriend. She was living with her parents in Bedford Township, Michigan while she was working and preparing for her transition to life as a college student. She was 20 years old at the time, working as a secretary for the law office of James Rabbit and Jay Feldstein in Toledo, Ohio, making the 20-minute drive each day across the state line. She was planning to quit in the next two weeks in order to attend Bible College. And accounts of this case suggest that her last day at work simply couldn't come soon enough, as unnerving things had started to happen around the office. The previous year, in 1980, ten months before she went missing, on a wall across from her office window, someone had painted the words, quote, I love you, Cindy, end quote, in large letters, along with a smaller phrase, quote, by GW, end quote. According to a friend, Cynthia was the only Cindy who worked on the side of the strip mall where the law office sat, so it seemed to have been placed intentionally for her to see. Police also checked with the other businesses in the strip mall after Cynthia went missing and confirmed that she was the only employee to go by Cindy. However, she had no idea who GW could be, and this message remained on the wall for her to see for six months before it was finally covered up. To her horror, a few weeks after it was covered, the same message reappeared in even larger letters and much more visible, and things only escalated for her from there. 
In the summer of 1981, she began to receive anonymous phone calls at work with disturbing messages, and this was especially scary for Cynthia because she spent a good amount of time alone in the office in the mornings before the attorneys came in for the day. A client for the firm at the time, Larry Mullins, remembers an incident when he was in the office paying off a bill while one of these calls came in. He said that Cynthia picked up the phone and hung up very quickly, only for it to ring again. In his own words, quote, she got a phone call. She kind of reacted like maybe it was obscene or something and hung up real quick. And the look on her face still, I can picture it today. She was scared. She was honestly and sincerely scared. It gives me shivers to think of the look on her face. Something scared the hell out of her, end quote. According to Mullins, when he asked her about the call, she was verbally dismissive of it, but the look on her face said everything that he needed to know. Chillingly, this interaction took place only the day before Cynthia went missing. Perhaps even worse for Cynthia, however, she couldn't just leave these fears at work when she left each day, and she began to experience recurring nightmares about being kidnapped and murdered by a stranger. She would hear a knock on the office door, see a man that she recognized, and let him in, only to be brutally attacked and killed. Cynthia's sister, Christine, recalls these nightmares being so severe that she overheard Cindy crying to their mother in terror, quote, he murdered me, mom, end quote. Because of the phone calls and her growing, completely understandable paranoia, her bosses told Cynthia to lock the office doors at all times, even during business hours. They also installed an emergency buzzer at her desk, which would alert a nearby business if she were to use it. And these are smart accommodations, however, unfortunately, they would turn out to be insufficient in protecting Cynthia. On the morning of Tuesday, August 4th, 1981, Cynthia skipped breakfast and left her parents' house at around 8.30 a.m. to drive to her office on East Manhattan Boulevard. She was wearing a white v-neck dress with red piping, open-toe sandals, a sapphire ring, gold watch, and carrying a brown purse. Because it wasn't uncommon for Cynthia to be alone in the office during the morning hours, there aren't many people who can account for her on this day. Cynthia was last seen around 9.45 a.m. on that morning by a maintenance worker, and calls to the law office around 10 a.m. went unanswered, suggesting that she must have been gone before then. This means that if the witness was correct about the timing, there was about a 15-minute window where Cynthia either left or something much more sinister happened to her. When her co-workers arrived to the office that morning, they found that no one was there. This was her boss, attorney James Rabbit and Jay Feldstein, who arrived around noon after being in court, and interestingly, they had actually been with Cynthia's father, Mr. Anderson, and one of his sons. While the scent of nail polish hung in the air, there was no trace of Cynthia, but there were plenty of signs that she had been there that day. Cynthia had taken her purse and her car keys, but her white 1980 Chevrolet citation was still in the parking lot. Additionally, she had not left any note for her co-workers or placed a hold on the phones, which she was known to do when she stepped out of the office. And, according to some reports, the office doors were still locked. The air conditioner, a radio, and all the lights had been left on, and all of the employees' desks had been prepared for the day. Eerily, a romance novel that Cynthia had been reading was left open on her desk, turned to a page that described the protagonist being kidnapped at knife point, it was this creepy detail that set off big red flags for the two attorneys, and they called the police immediately to alert them that she was missing. Jim Rabbit has been quoted saying, quote, It wasn't until really looking at the book 
particularly reading the passage in the novel that I had a sickening feeling that something was wrong, end quote. Since that day, Cynthia has not been seen or heard from again, and her social security number has not been used. She also had a large sum of money in her bank account that has never been touched. Once police started to investigate Cynthia's disappearance, they spoke at length with friends, family members, and co-workers, and they learned about the creepy message on the wall, the phone calls, and her nightmares, and even though there were essentially no leads to go off of, they did investigate what they could. The summer of 1981 brought somewhat of a crime wave to Toledo, in particular violent crimes, which was keeping the police very busy. They were investigating serial killers as well as a number of other homicides. Despite this, a Toledo Blade article reported in 1982 that Cynthia's case file was, quote, so thick it takes two hands to pick it up, end quote. Sadly, despite their best efforts, all police have ever really been able to do is speculate. However, there are several theories that have come to be known over the years as being the most likely. The most prevalent theory in this case to this day is that an obsessed stalker kidnapped Cynthia on that morning, and considering the continuous phone calls and the sign across from her office, it does seem like there was somebody trying to get her attention. According to Detective William Adams of the Toledo Police Department, investigators had worked with Cynthia's friends to try and figure out who GW could be, but could only come up with one possible suspect, a maintenance worker with those initials who worked inside the building, which meant that he had access to all the office doors. No evidence was ever found to implicate this man, however, so there were never any charges filed. He did remain a person of interest until he passed away several years later, but was never named a suspect, and it seems highly unlikely that he was involved at all. Interestingly, the man who spray-painted the I Love You Cindy sign did reportedly come forward, claiming that the message was intended for a different Cynthia, and he was never charged. Although this does seem incredibly suspicious, it is reported that police were actually able to confirm his story somehow. A month after Cynthia went missing, Detective William Adams received a disturbing anonymous call from a whispering female voice who sounded very nervous. This person claimed Cynthia Anderson was being held in the basement of a white house. She spoke of two houses that were next to each other, owned by the same family who were out of town at the time. She claimed that the son of this family was holding Cynthia in the basement. Attempts by police to get any further information were unsuccessful, and once the caller hung up, they did search for houses like those described, but ultimately were able to find nothing. They also put out a public plea asking for this anonymous caller to call back, but that call has never come in. Another theory is that Cynthia Anderson was murdered, maybe because she'd overheard information about a drug deal. One of the attorneys working in the same office as Cynthia in 1981 was Richard Neller, and he was representing a client named Jose Rodriguez Jr. In 1996, the pair were both convicted for their involvement in a long-standing drug conspiracy, and this was no small operation. It was a 25-count indictment. Based on this, the police started to theorize that Cynthia could have overheard Neller and Rodriguez discussing a drug deal, and that she was kidnapped and killed to ensure her silence. When presented with this theory, Cynthia's father said that if she had overheard something, she would have reported it absolutely because, quote, that's just who she was, honest and caring, end quote. 
In Rodriguez's trial in 1995, an informant did testify that Rodriguez had admitted to murdering her while he was threatening Neller, accusing him of providing for legal counsel. While this is interesting, the judge ruled it unreliable, and without any information on this informant, there isn't a way to dispute that claim. Ultimately, it was concluded that there was insufficient evidence against Neller and Rodriguez, on top of the fact that there wasn't any evidence she had been kidnapped or murdered at all. There are two other possible murder suspects, brothers Anthony and Nathaniel Cook. Over a period of 16 months in the 1980s, they murdered at least nine people across the state of Ohio, mostly young women. They have been questioned in regard to Cynthia's disappearance, but there is no evidence to implicate them. In 2000, as part of a plea deal with the prosecutor in Lucas County, which is where Cynthia went missing from, they confessed on tape to many homicides, although they did deny killing Cynthia. And as if there wasn't enough frustration regarding the lack of information in this case, there is a convicted murderer who is currently incarcerated in Ohio and who is thought to have a possible involvement, but police have never released this person's name. An episode of Unsolved Mysteries that featured Cynthia's case ended with the sentiment that police do believe that Cynthia was murdered, but that isn't the only possible scenario. Another very common theory in this case is that foul play wasn't involved at all and that Cynthia had run away from home. The Anderson household has been described as very strict, and her sister described, quote, My parents wanted us involved with church, and we were. Perhaps Cynthia staring down the barrel of attending Bible college with a boyfriend who is also part of the church. Perhaps she wanted to see the world apart from her sheltered vantage point, and walking away was the easiest way to do so, end quote. In the weeks leading up to her disappearance, her father had noticed Cynthia showing more interest in her looks and dieting, and he suggested that these changes may have, quote, contributed to his daughter going missing, end quote. This, in particular, I take slight issue with, considering that Cynthia was a 20-year-old young woman with many friends, a boyfriend, and about to transition to college, a completely new chapter in her life. If at any point in her life she would take the extra time to look and feel her best, it would be then. Suggesting that it could have contributed to her disappearance seems almost unnecessarily defamatory, especially coming from her father. And my intention here isn't to be harsh towards her father, and it should be noted that neither of her parents really believed she had run away. And before her father passed away in 2008, he actually firmly believed that Cindy's remains would be found in a suburban pond in Perrysburg, Ohio. Police did search this pond, but they did not find anything. However, there are some legitimate points to be made considering this theory, especially considering that there were zero signs of a struggle, and some sources have reported that the doors to the office were still locked. Additionally, it does need to be considered that there is no way of knowing if the I love you Cindy message or the phone calls were related to the case at all, so there really is no evidence of any sort of foul play. It is possible that Cynthia had become so frightened by all of the things that were happening in her life that she thought running away was the only way to keep herself safe. That being said, there was a substantial amount of money left in Cynthia's bank account, which would have been almost essential to her starting a new life should that have been her intention. In my own opinion, had Cynthia run away without any money or resources that we know of, she wouldn't have remained hidden for very long. She was, again, only 20 years old and extremely sheltered. 
Going out on her own would not only have been nearly impossible without any money or any significant experience of the world, it would have been an extremely scary leap to make, and there's no indication that she was in such a desperate situation at home or with the odd messages that she was receiving to take such a drastic action. It has now been over 40 years since Cynthia Anderson disappeared from her desk on the morning of August 4, 1981, and to this day her case is the longest still active missing persons case in Ohio law enforcement history. Police have not given up on finding Cynthia and solving her case, and for all we know, it is possible that she's still alive somewhere. Unfortunately, Cynthia's mother passed away from cancer in 1982, and her father passed away in 2008, still living at the home that Cynthia grew up in at 3030 Springbrook Drive, holding on to hope that she would one day just walk through the door. For the sake of her remaining family, and especially for Cynthia herself, it is more important than ever that we not let her name be forgotten. As with every unsolved disappearance, there is at least someone out there who knows what really happened on that day in 1981, and there is always an answer to be found. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the disappearance of Cynthia Anderson, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, the story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.